We're all painfully aware that much of our life consists of events and environments that try to limit us, discourage us, and choke out our hope. The easiest route is to give up, but it's not the only road. Even in the midst of these hostile surroundings, not only can you survive, you can grow, you can live, you can thrive and thrive. Good morning. Our series is called Thrive, and it's all about a guy who lived a long time ago. His story is in the book of Genesis. His name is Joseph, and God gave him more ink than any of the patriarchs. We consider Abraham great, but Abraham didn't get as much space as this guy Joseph did. And I think the reason for him getting so much room is God is wanting to show you and me how we can live a functional life in a dysfunctional world, how we can live a whole life in a broken world. And that's important because that's what you and I have been called to do. I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but the world around you is really messed up. A lot of stuff doesn't work the way the designer designed it to work. A lot of things don't function as the creator manufactured it. This world does not operate according to the manufacturer's guidelines. And because it's broken, it's a challenge for us to live a whole world, in, a whole life in a broken world. And Joseph did it, and we're going to school on him, and we're trying to see how he did it. In the first two weeks, we saw what it takes to live a functional life in a dysfunctional world. You need the favor of God. In other words, you need God to come along in your life and do stuff for you, to open doors for you, to give you a power that's bigger than yourself. You know, a lot of people tell me sometimes, all I want is just what I work for. Well, I understand what they mean. They, they, what they're trying to say is they want to pull their own load, and, and I, or pull their own weight, and, and I understand that. But the truth of the matter is, none of us just wants what we can get out of life for ourselves. What we need is God to come in and help us. And, and that's what we saw in Joseph's life, that he had God's favor on his life. And, and for, for, seven, for 13 years, rather, from the time he was 17 to the time he was 30, his life was characterized by a series of unfortunate events. And yet, and throughout all these things, he had God's favor on him. You know, his brothers hated him, but that didn't stop God's favor. They sold him as a slave, but God's favor was with him as a slave. He wound up being lied on by a woman who claimed that he tried to rape her when really he refused her advances, and he wound up in jail. But even in jail, God's favor was on him. That's important to me, because for many of us, our circumstances are less than perfect. You're not, you know, hated by your brothers and thrown in a pit, but sometimes it feels like you're in a pit, right? And it could be that you know, you're not in jail, but sometimes there's some circumstance or some part of your situation that kind of holds you in bondage and you feel like you're in jail. And yet, even with that, even if you're going through a very difficult time right now, and even if you're in a circumstance or a situation, perhaps an environment that you can't see any way out of, the beauty is to know that you can still have God's favor resting upon you and that God is still right there with you. Joseph experienced that. But today, we enter chapter 41. And Joseph is coming out into the sunlight. You know, God, as we saw last week, took him from the prison in one morning, from being prisoner number 336. I don't know that that was his number. Just pulled that out of the air. But from being a prisoner in an orange jumpsuit to being the most powerful man in the world in just one morning. Remember the story? Pharaoh had dreams, and he couldn't figure them out. And Joseph was brought out of prison. And Joseph said, here's what your dreams mean. And he told, him, told Pharaoh that there were going to be seven very prosperous economic years for Egypt. And then those seven years are going to be followed by seven very bad economic years. And Joseph said, you need somebody really, really bright to just be over the entire land so that during these seven great economic years, he can collect 20% of the produce and store it 
for the lean years so that people don't starve to death in the cities. Joseph said, you need to get your brightest guy and put him on this. Pharaoh looked around the room and said, you're the dude. There's nobody here that's as bright as you are. And in one morning, Joseph became, in my way of thinking, the most powerful man in the world. See what you think. Egypt ruled the world. Pharaoh said that he would be the only person over Joseph. And basically, Pharaoh said to Joseph, we're on your agenda. You tell us what to do and we'll do it. Sounds to me like at the age of 30, Joseph became the most significant, powerful man in the world and all in one morning. God brought him out into the sunlight. Hey, if God wants to promote you, nobody can stop him. You can have people out to get you, people who hate you, people who mess you around. But if God decides he wants to promote you, they can't do a thing about it. That's why the psalmist says promotion doesn't come from the east or from the west, but it comes from the Lord our God. And God decided he wanted to promote Joseph. All those years of being faithful when things were going badly, it was like God let that be the backswing. And the, the further back the backswing went, the further God drove the ball with Joseph. And he became the most powerful man in the world. Life is good. He now lives in the second biggest palace. I mean, he's not just managing somebody else's house. He's got his own house. He's not just managing somebody else's team. He has his own team. He's got the pools. He's got everything he wants. If on the way to work, he sees a new Bentley in the showroom, he just orders it. It's his. If he sees suits that he wants in the store, he can get them in five different colors. Anything Joseph wants is his. I mean, he's got an unlimited expense account. Pretty cool for a guy who's 30 years of age. But life gets better. He's engaged now to a beautiful gal, and, and, and she's, you know, really something. And Joseph is excited. He's married. But then I think we come now to the greatest moment of Joseph's life. Time out now for me telling the story. If you know the book of jo uh, Genesis and you know the story of Joseph, I wonder what you think would be the highlight of his life. For some of you, it would be what we talked about last week. It was that moment when Pharaoh said, you're the man, and you're going to run the country. If you like if you like being in charge, chances are you would see that as the highlight of Joseph's life. But if you're into relationships and, those, and, and people maybe are more important to you than, than money or jobs, it could be that you would say, no, Mark, I think the highlight of Joseph's life was, um, you know, those 10 brothers who hated him and sold him, you know, because the time came when the, in, the, in seven bad years where, where, where his brothers and dad lived, they got so poor they didn't have, they didn't have food. And they had to go of all places to Egypt. And what they, these 10 guys who sold Joseph will not realize is that they are now standing before their brother. You know, 13 years has passed. Or passed. They thought he was dead. And then on top of that, Joseph is now the king of bling. I mean, he's got all the chains and everything and cool suit. And he's like looking like Egyptian and walking like an Egyptian. And so they, 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 <laughs> they come in there. They have no idea it's Joseph. I mean, Joseph looks out one day. He's used to people queuing up in front of him to get food. And he looks out. There's the dudes who tried to sell him. And, if, you know, if you're Joseph, you're saying, whoa, this is my chance. I am going to just really run these guys through the ringer. But you know how he doesn't, and he's kind and he's gracious to them. And, and finally, Joseph being an emotional man. I don't know if any of you are emotional. You just, like, can't hide your emotions. That's the kind of guy Joseph was. He just couldn't hide it. And it, it just one day it just got all over him that his brothers were there. And he broke down, and he began to weep, and he said, I'm Joseph. You thought I was dead. And you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And God sent me ahead of you to spare your life. And he hugged them and forgave them. And so for some of you, you might say that that was the greatest moment of his life. Others of you would say, no, it came after that. Something else that we have to look at in the future. Joseph asked his brothers, is daddy still alive? 
See, all those years, his father thought that Joseph was dead because when his brothers sold him into slavery, they took that coat that his father had made for him, they dipped it in animal blood and shipped it back to dad and said, do you think this is your son's? And when Jacob saw that, he thought an animal had killed his son. And all those years that Joseph was in Egypt, Jacob just figured he was dead. And they said, yeah, dad's still alive. And Joseph said, well, I want him to come here. And Joseph sent a fleet, sent a fleet of limousines all the way over to where his dad was. And they, now just give me a little anachronistic space there, okay? I mean, he sent the limousines over there, and they came back in a motorcade. And when that was that day when his dad came in the motorcade, Joseph looked out the palace window, and there he was. And you can see him running out of the palace, just ending the meeting right there and running out and putting his arms around his dad and said, Dad, so good to see you. God brought me here. I'm going to take care of everything. I got you a place. I, I, you're going you're gonna to live in one of the finest houses here. We're going to take really good care of you. For some of you, you'd say that was the highest moment of his life. And I don't think I would argue with any of you over any of that, but I can just tell you that for me, the apex of Joseph's life happens in today's talk. I want to read a scripture to you. And let me tell you before I read it that it's the scripture that we're going to be in for two weeks. See, I'm just going to get halfway through today's message, and then I'm going to come back and bring next week's second part next week. Because what we're going to be talking about is Joseph's boys. I'd like to read to you from the book of Genesis chapter 41, verse 50. Joseph had two sons born to him before the years of famine came. Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, was their mother. Joseph named, Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh forget, saying, God made me forget all my hardships and my parental home. He named his second son Ephraim means double prosperity, saying, God has prospered me in the land of my sorrow. That's all we're going to cover today, and we're only going to cover half of that. See, I think, I think the greatest moment in Joseph's life came not long after he was married. Maybe a few months, maybe a year or so after he was married. His beautiful wife came and whispered something in his ear. Joseph, you're going to be a daddy. Wow. I mean, how much better can life get? You got the dream job. You can have anything you want. You're living in this huge palace. God is just pouring out his favor. You come out into the sunlight, and life is great, and people snap. I mean, can you imagine Joseph on the way to work? I mean, here he is in his motorcade, and everybody has to bow to him. I mean, all these people that said he was finished, that he would never get anywhere, that God was through with him. You know that, boy, that, that boy's done for. Stick a fork in him. I mean, all these people, when Joseph was riding through town, they had to bow to him. I mean, isn't that really something? All these people, they bowed to him as he was on his way to work. There's a couple over there. Who are they? Oh, that's Mr. and Mrs. Potiphar. Yeah, they're bowing down to Joseph. That's great. But now, Joseph is waiting to become a dad. The months go by. And finally, the time comes when they have to go to the hospital there. And when they're in the hospital, you know, Joseph is pacing there. You know, he's inside the birthing suite. And, and, and I can just tell you this. Even though a lot of bad things happen in a hospital, for me, three of my greatest memories happen in a hospital. Two, in Harris Hospital in Fort Worth, Texas, where Jonathan and Jared were born. And one, in Wesley Hospital here, where Stephen was born 15 years ago. Those are precious moments to me. I mean, it's just, it, there's nothing like that moment when you get told that newborn for the first time. Suddenly there's a cry, and there in the midwife wraps a little bundle up and brings it out the bundle and puts it in Joseph's arms and says, Look, sir, a boy. You have a boy. Wow. It's great. Joseph is peeling back the covers and looking into the face of that little one when all of a sudden his press secretary comes in. Sir, please, you got to help me. It's a madhouse out there. All the networks are here. The tabloids, everybody is here. <laughs> the driving is crazy. Uh, we can't, they're just saying, can you get us something? Sir, sir, please, you would just do us all on the team a big favor. Could you just come out and take a few questions? 
Joseph, still holding the baby, walks out. And sure enough, they start firing the, the obligatory questions. Everybody okay? Joseph, yeah. Mom and, mom and son are doing just fine. How big? Joseph tells how many pounds, how many ounces. A few more questions. And then finally, the one that Joseph has been anticipating comes. Sir, what's his name? Joseph said, I knew you were going to ask that. Hey, you know what? Back in the old days in church, we used to do what we called testimonies, in which, you know, if you're in a small group or a church service every once in a while, and we still do that sometimes before Thanksgiving, where people are just given the opportunity to stand up or maybe just speak up and say what God has done for them. It's like saying, you know, even today in advertising, we have testimonials where someone said, I used the product and it worked for me. Sometimes people used to give testimonies of what God had done. They'd stand and say, well, this is what God did in my life. Joseph went one step better. Because he didn't just want to tell people what God did. He wanted to name his boys so that nobody would ever forget what God had done. Joseph said, I knew you were going to ask that question. It's the strangest name probably you've ever heard. But you know what? In my language, there's a word, manushan, which means to forget. We're going to call this boy forget. Now, some of us have had kids that we could have named forget. So just so that they wouldn't mix it up, Joseph went on to explain, we're going to call this boy Manasseh forget, which means God has made me forget all of my hardships. I want to talk to you about that for just a few moments, and then we'll go home. Just that one statement, God has made me forget all my trouble. You might say, well, Mark, how can we spend 15 minutes talking about that one line? Well, that line's like an onion. There are layers that we're going to peel back for a few moments and see if these don't speak to you. The first layer that we peel back, this is the very obvious truth, if you take that statement, God has made me forget all my trouble, is inherent in that is the fact that Joseph had had trouble. I mean, he couldn't say, the Lord has made me forget my trouble if he never had any trouble. He was giving a testimony to the fact that he had had trouble. Hey, I need to listen to that because that's a, that's a weakness on my part. I had the greatest parents in the world, and I'm thankful for my parents every day. One thing I'm, I'm so grateful for is my parents would never let me be a victim. They would never let me have self-pity. My parents always called me to a higher standard and a higher level, and so they really, really talked to me about being a victim. Very grateful for that. I'm thankful for that every day. But sometimes I take that to an unhealthy level because I'm the kind of person, if something hits me in life, I want to say, I'm just fine. That didn't hurt. It didn't bother me. I'm fine. I'm cool. Leave me alone. I'm just fine. I'm the, I was that way in sports. There are two facts about me in sports. Number one is I love to play sports, and number two, no matter what I play, I'm injury prone. I get hurt. It's just a fact. I mean, you put me playing a sport, I'll break something. I'll mess something up. I don't know. I've broken all kinds of stuff, torn stuff playing football. Finally, in my mid-30s, I quit playing touch football and pick up basketball because I decided I would take up golf because it was a kinder and gently sport. I remember I was playing at Braeburn one day. If you, know, if you know how Braeburn lays, I was on the 10th hole. My partner had hit a shot into the trees there on the 10th hole, about 175 yards from the tee box, and he and I were walking through those trees trying to find his ball, and I guess the party behind us didn't know that we were in the trees and couldn't see us. One of the guys teed off, and he hit a hot shot right off the tee box. I mean, it just came off like this, caught me in the back of the head and knocked me out colder than a mackerel. <laughs> it doesn't matter what I play, I get hurt. <laughs> if I took up chess, I'd get carpal tunnel. I mean, it's just, <laughs> that's me. 
but especially through the years when I played football and even pick up football, I just, I'd always get hurt, you know? I can remember I, I broke an arm many, many years ago playing football and got up and said, I'm fine, leave me alone. And I was defending passes with one arm dangling like this. And then I remember about 20 so years ago, maybe a little longer, I was playing touch football here in, in Wichita with some guys from our church. And I went up to catch a pass, came down awkwardly on my left leg and snapped the ACL, anterior cruciate ligament, out of my left knee, just popped it cleaner than a whistle. And I was lying there on the ground, and the first two things I said, number one is, don't tell Mary Alice. And then <laughs> the second thing I said is, I'm, all fi I'm fine, leave me alone, let me get up, I'm, I'm ready to play. And played quarterback for about 20 minutes, and I remember throwing a pass, and when I came forward in my throwing motion, I could feel my knee just do like this and separate. But I said, I'm fine, leave me alone. And I'm that way about everything in life. And that's not necessarily good because every once in a while, it's a good thing to sit down and say, you know what, that hurt. <laughs> that was really pretty tough. And that's what Joseph was saying. Joseph was saying, I had trouble. Could be that somebody's already getting mad at me this morning. I hope not. But I know how you guys are. You guys are the brightest audience I ever speak to. And some of you out there, and you're saying, I know where you're going with this message. Yeah, I've already seen the flight plan. What you're saying is, you're going to ask me to forget my trouble. And by the way, Mark, I'm not even thinking about that today because you just don't know the pain that I've encountered. And I need to hold on to that. And I need to like, sort of like celebrate my victimhood. And if you're asking me to let go of what I've been through, then I'm not even going to think about it. And I'm going to check out on you the rest of the message. And if you feel that way, I understand. But before you do, and before you think that your trouble is worse than Joseph, I want you to think about four kinds of trouble that Joseph had. First of all, he had trouble he didn't deserve. Now, some of us have had trouble that we deserved. I know I sure have. Lord knows I've gotten into plenty of that. My parents tried to explain it to me, but I didn't listen. Mary Alice told me what would happen. I didn't listen to her. And by the way, you know what? When you and I get into trouble that we deserve, let's not play the victim card. Let's say we had it coming. Let's man up. Let's woman up. Let's say, you know what? I asked for this. Now, Lord, help me get out of it. And so we've all been in that kind of trouble, but haven't you been in trouble you didn't deserve? I don't, I'm just talking for me. You know what's really tough for me when I get into trouble that I don't deserve? I try to connect the dots, and it doesn't make any sense. I'm saying, well, I did this, but then this happened. Well, why, why, why is that? There's a word that we have for trouble that we don't deserve. We call it injustice. And you know what? Injustice screws up a lot of people. You can do two things with injustice. You can do what Joseph did and say, you know what? Injustice happens to everybody, but God is on the throne and my confidence is in him. Or you can go back and you can take out injustice and play with it. You can look at all the past hurts that you've been through and the people that have treated you badly and the things that you didn't deserve. And you can keep them all in a box as if they were pieces of broken glass. And you can take them out of the box and play with them. But every time they do, they will cut you and you'll bleed. Joseph had trouble he didn't deserve. <laughs> this one really speaks to me. He had trouble he couldn't control. Anybody else like me a control? I am, I am the world's biggest control freak. A benevolent control freak. I, I don't know why I think this, but in the back of my mind, I always have the feeling that if, I, if, I, if there's a problem, if I've got long enough, if I've got enough time to look at it, if I can study it enough, if I can pull together the right team around me, we can fix anything. But life just doesn't give us that all the time, does it? 
Every once in a while, something comes up, and you just can't control it. You want to control it. You'd, you'd be willing to. You would sell almost everything you have to get, a, to get a handle on it, to get it under control. Some of you are in a marriage, and you just, it's out of control. Some of you have situations with your kids. It's out of control. There's nothing you can do. You have problems. You have trouble that you can't control. And that's what Joseph had. He couldn't make his brothers love him. When they threw him in the pit, he couldn't get out. When they tied him up and sold him as a slave, he couldn't get loose. When Potiphar's, lied, Potiphar's wife lied on him and he was in prison, he couldn't get out. He had all kinds of trouble that he couldn't control. Then, on top of that, he had waves of trouble. One thing after the other. Number four, he had trouble that he didn't expect. Sometimes we can see trouble coming and we can prepare for it, but Joseph had stuff he didn't expect. When he went to see his brothers, he didn't expect them to throw him in a pit. When he went in that day and did the right thing in Potiphar's house, he didn't expect Potiphar's wife to lie on him. When he told the butler the meaning of his dream and asked the butler to tell Pharaoh about him, he didn't expect to be forgotten. I mean, Joseph had trouble he didn't expect. So just in case anybody's here today and you say, Mark, when you ask me to forget my trouble, you don't know the kind of trouble I've had. I just want to ask you, catalog Joseph's trouble and see if maybe it doesn't resonate with you. So the very first thing that Joseph's statement means was he'd had trouble. Number two, he'd come out of his trouble. I don't know if anybody else here today knows what this means. I'm guessing that many of you do. I know I sure do. Have you ever had the kind of trouble that people looked at you and said, that's it for him, that's it for her? And it's trouble that you couldn't see your way out of. It was like you looked as far as your headlights could go, and you just saw nothing but trouble, and you begin to wonder, am I ever going to get out of this? And then all of a sudden, God comes along, and he brings you out of that trouble. And all of a sudden... If you know, you know what it was like? You couldn't sleep before. You'd wake up at 12 o'clock, and then you'd go back to sleep, fight to get back to sleep, and you wake up at 1 again, and you wake up at 2, and then 3, and then 4, and every time you woke up, it's like the trouble was just right there on your monitor. But do you know what it was like when God brings you out of that, and all of a sudden you can go to sleep at night, and you can sleep all night? Number two, Joseph was out of his trouble. Number three, Joseph forgot his trouble. Now, the next comment is worth you coming on a holiday weekend. There is a world of difference between coming out of your trouble and being able to forget it. If 32 years of pastoring has taught me anything, it's that some people are allowed by God's grace to come out of their trouble, but for some reason they decide to live in the past. I never can figure it out. I've seen people who are in a horrible marriage, and yes, indeed, maybe they were in a marriage with an abuser. Perhaps they were in a marriage with somebody who didn't treat them well. Maybe they were in a marriage with someone who was an adulterer or a serial liar, and yes, it was just trouble, and they didn't think they were ever going to, you know, nothing was ever going to change, and maybe that marriage ended, and then God brought some wonderful woman, some wonderful man into that person's life who loved them very much, and now they're in this great situation but I've seen so many people just like live back in the past with the pain. And anything, anytime anything went wrong in their, in their good marriage, they would say, oh, no, here we go again. I'm going to go right back to where I was. Take out the broken pieces and let me get cut again. I've met people who couldn't enjoy the good things that God was doing in their life today because someone hurt them many years ago, maybe even when they were a child, but it's still there. 
Well, it could be that someone is listening to me today and you're saying, well, Mark, you just need to mind your own business because I've been through so many hard things and I I can't let them go. See, here's what I think. I think oftentimes we hold on to the pain of the past because we have this fear that if we let go, those people who hurt us are going to win. Here's the thing. You don't need to let go. Don't worry about whether those people win or not. God will take care of them. You need to let go of the past so that you win. But it could be that someone is hearing me today and you're saying, Mark, it's just too much to ask. Okay. I'll accept that. Well, let's go back for a moment to the birthing suite. Here's Joseph. And the midwife brings out that bundle and puts it in his arms and says, look, sir, a son. (laughs) Joseph looks down at him and says, yeah, that's fine. Here, take him back. Take him back to his mother. But, sir, this is a happy day. This is your boy. You have a, you have a son. You have a, it's, it's a great day. <laughs> you don't understand. I have 10 brothers. You know what those bums did? They sold me. They hated my guts, and they sold me. And i got to figure out how to get even with them. I'll tell you what. Someday I'm going to find those guys, and I'll tell you what. I'm going to give them everything they've got coming to them. But, sir, you don't understand. This is, this is the birthday of your baby boy. This is your first child. This is a day to be happy. I can't be happy because in this town, there is a woman, and she tried to ruin me. I did the right thing, and that lousy woman lied on me, and I got thrown into prison. I spent over two years in prison, and somehow, I don't know how I'm going to do it yet, but somehow, I'm going to get even with her. Even if you're here today and you can't forget the past, aren't you glad Joseph could? What an ugly story that would have been. Well, it could be that somebody's like walking right up to the edge and you're saying, okay, Mark, I'm thinking about this. Uh, I'm thinking about forgetting my past. But I don't know how. I've tried, but it keeps coming back. Something that should have happened in my life and didn't happen or something that shouldn't have happened in my life and it did happen and I want to forget it and I want to move on. But I can't. How do I do it? Number four. Joseph said, the Lord has made me forget all my trouble. There are some broken hearts that only the Lord can heal. There are some, there's some mending that takes place that no human hands can do. Don't you wonder how people live their lives without Jesus? Because there's some things that only he can do. (laughs) The way that the Lord helps you forget is not what we would think. When we live in the past, we fantasize about what life would be like if it had never happened. We fantasize about how life would be if we'd never been hurt. But that's not going to happen. The past is very stubborn. God does not heal us from the pain of the past by making it go away. He heals it. Are you ready for this? He heals it by restoring to us what has been taken away. Think about Joseph. Somebody was always trying to take that boy's coat. 
His brothers took, took, took his coat, shipped it back to dad. Potiphar's wife grabbed a hold of his coat, kept his coat. He can have any coat he wants right now. Why? I mean, he can walk into any store he wants. I want that one. I want that one. I want this one. I mean, why? You think Pharaoh did that? No, it was God. God said, I know it got taken away from you, but listen to me. Anything that man takes away from you with his little hand, God will come along with his huge hand and give it back to you in more ways than you can ever dream. Potiphar's wife tried to ruin his reputation and take it away from him. But what's his reputation now? He's the most famous man in Egypt. God is so good at restoring what's been taken away from us. In 1978, I graduated from college. 22-year-old kid. There were several churches that tried to get me to come and join their staffs, but the one church that I really felt God's leadership to go to was in Houston, Texas. I loved Houston then. I love Houston now. Big old noisy city metropolitan area, crowded, melting pot. People come from all over the world to live in Houston. I absolutely love that energy and love, love the size of Houston. And when I went there, I really sensed God's anointing on my life. Now, that may be a term that kind of like bothers you a little bit. Let me just tell you what that means. That means that every once in a while, God will like give a special enablement to a man or a woman to be able to do his work. And it's not because that person is worth anything. It's just because God chooses to put his blessing upon that particular person to do his work. And it was like from the moment I went to Houston, God just put some sort of special enablement on me. I'm 22 years old. The first week I spoke, the first weekend I spoke there, I spoke for 25 minutes, which is kind of short for me. <laughs> I spoke on Matthew 7, 13, and 14, just a pretty ordinary message. In those days, we used to have what we call invitations. The minister would give his talk, and at the end of the talk, people would stand and they would sing, and then if people wanted to come forward to the altar, they could come forward to make a decision. I gave a 25-minute talk. The invitation lasted for one and one-half hours, and it wasn't contrived. It wasn't manipulated. It was just crazy. Fifty-five people made decisions that day. I mean, it was like we would like end the service, then others would come. And we've like been there by an hour, and we were ending the service. You know, okay, it's time. And all of a sudden, a young woman began to cry out from the middle of the worship center, I'm not saved. I need Jesus. And I'm like, wow, that kicked it off again. And that sort, of, that sort of started something. I didn't, it's not something I wanted. It's not something that I asked for. But it was like the people in the congregation just said, man, that guy has got some kind of special anointing on him, and we can't wait for him to get here. And it's like for the next months, it was like anything that the Lord let me touch for the kingdom. God blessed. <laughs> it was an inner city church. And they used to tell me, the people in the church would say, Mark, please don't go out by yourself at night and talk to people. Because I'd just walk up down the streets and talk to people. I said, Mark, please don't go out by yourself. It's dangerous out there. And sure enough, I'd hear pop, pop, pop. I'd hear the, the pop of gunfire, and, and it was crazy stuff. But God did some, I could keep you here for the whole afternoon telling you the most incredible things that God did while I was out there. I remember one night I was talking, I was just knocked on a guy's door and was talking to him. Pasty-faced kid came out, pockmarks all over his arm. And I told him who I was, and I was trying to talk to him about what Jesus could do for him. And he said, Jesus can't do anything for me. He said, I killed a man right where you're standing. I said, well, I guess I'll move then. He said, no. 
He said, no. He said, it was a drug deal that went bad. And he said, listen, I've killed a man. I've committed murder, and God can't do anything with me. I prayed with him. He received Christ. I baptized him the next week. I remember, I could, I could keep you here from stories. God just did the most unusual things in Houston. One Wednesday after we had been at the church, I went down. There's a lady in our church. She said, there's a man in our trailer park, and he's just really, really crazy, and he's messed up, and he's drunk tonight. And he just, was, if you could just, and the people, people in the church had just sort of gotten the idea that I could do anything. It wasn't true. It was just God's favor was upon me, and God was using me. And she said, if you would come talk to him. I, my, my husband and I, we love this couple. If you come out and talk to him, maybe something would happen. I went in that night. The guy was so drunk. I mean, I usually don't talk to anyone that drunk because they won't remember what you said, you know. And, uh, but I started talking to him. He turned his face to the wall, and he said the same thing this drug dealer told me. He said, God can't do anything with me because he said, he said I'm, I work for the, I'm a Harris County police detective. Harris County is county where Houston is. And he said, I, I, I abuse people. And he was, he was Hispanic. And, and he wept. And he said, I abused my own people. And he said, I've, I've beaten them with rubber hoses. And he said, God can't do anything for me. I said, I'll tell you what, if you'll get out of that bed and get on your knees and pray with me, you'd be surprised what God can do. And he got out of the bed and he got on his knees. I still remember that day. The disheveled drunk got out and he knelt down beside me. And he started praying. And he liked the prayer that I pray with you at the end of every service. And he invited Christ into his life. I didn't think he would remember it. To be honest with you, I didn't have a lot of hopes for that. Next Sunday morning, I got up. I was leading worship. I looked out. All of a sudden, in trooped this very nicely dressed family. The guy came in. His hair was slipped back. He, had, you know, he was dressed in sort of a Hispanic dress in those days, really nice dress, beautiful black suit and bow tie and silver tip collars. And he walked down, and I thought, my goodness, it looks like the guy was a senator or something. Walked in and sat down with his family, didn't know who he was. All of a sudden, he looked up and did this to me, and I realized it was Raul, the guy that, I mean, it was just that kind of stuff, phenomenal stuff. And I felt God's blessing and anointing on my life, anything I touched. But there was a problem. The pastor in that day, he and I were the only staff in that church. And I didn't understand. I wish I had understood mental illness back then. I do today much better, and I could have contextualized it a lot more. But the pastor was 40 years older than I, and he was suffering from some deep mental illness. And part of that mental illness involved paranoia to like an extreme degree. There would be days when he would just leave and say, I'm leaving you in charge. I don't know when I'm coming back. Just do everything. Don't let anybody else do anything. And he'd be gone three, four weeks sometimes. I would speak, I would preach every sermon. I would lead every song. I would write all small group materials. I would conduct every funeral. I would conduct every wedding. I, I mean, it, you guys owe him a debt of gratitude because I learned to pastor in those days. Kind of heady stuff for a 22-year-old kid. But God had blessed me in so many ways that after a while, unfortunately, in his paranoia, he began to try to destroy me. I couldn't believe that. He began to accuse me all the time of trying to do things to harm him, to try to take the church away from him, of being, you know, all these things. And the sad thing is I would have jumped off a building for him. And I was just quiet about all that stuff. I just sort of accepted it and rolled with the punches. And Mary Alice wouldn't know something was wrong. And she would say, well, Mark, what's wrong? And I'd say, oh, there's nothing wrong. And I would just kind of give her a light answer because I didn't want to bother her. But it went on for months, and it was so difficult, and I never knew what I was going to get. One day, I was the greatest guy in the world. The next day, I was the ev most evil villain, and just sort of the quote of the day, whatever was his particular mind. And then something really bad began to happen. In his paranoia, he began to take shots at me from the, from the pulpit. 
And at that point, the congregation really began to rise up and defend me. And I knew that was a bad situation. And my father, who was a great pastor for many years, taught me that you never heard a church. And very quietly, I stepped away and left Houston, the city I love so much, where God was using me in such a great way. And I wound up going to another ministry where God used me, but nothing like the level that I had been used before. And I will tell you that the years when I left were years of great grief. Because I wondered, would God ever do that again? Well, he did. I had no idea he'd be out of Kansas, but... <laughs> and I look sometimes at what God has done with our ministry, and I think, wow. God, and this is the thing, guys, i got to tell you. There are things that only I would know. That things, particular things I felt like were taken away from me, God has gone out of his way to show me that he's given them back. And then he did the coolest thing. It was in 2000 when this ministry had grown. We were already out here in this building. I had taken our staff to Houston for a pastor's conference. One afternoon in the session, I just told the rest of the group, you guys stay here. I've, I've got a little errand I want to run. And that afternoon, I drove out to see that pastor who is now in his 80s. We had talked a few times. And I sat down with him and his wife, and we reminisced about a lot of good things. And I got up to leave, and I was walking back to the car, and he followed me out, and all of a sudden, the tears began to flow down his face. And he called me like they do in, in the South. He said, Brother Hoover, I'm so sorry for the way I treated you. Can you ever forgive me? And he, in his way, he reached up, and short guy, he kissed me on the cheek, and he said, I want you to preach my funeral, and I've told my family you have complete control over it. And he said, can you ever forgive me? And with all the blessing that God had brought about in my life, it gave me the greatest joy to look at him and say, Preacher, I don't remember any of that. All I remember were the good times. And it's so strange because even though, though I was only there less than two years, and that was you know, in 78 and 79, it's like I'm back there all the time. I preached his funeral. I preached his wife's funeral. I married his granddaughter a couple of years ago. I just had the service for the chairman of the deacons last year. I mean, it was like God went out of his way to say, hey, Mark, listen, I know something has been taken away from you with a small hand, but I'm going to come along with my big hand, and I'm going to bring, I'm going to restore what has been taken. I'm talking to some of you today, and here's the deal. You're still living in the past, and the problem is this. You have to make a decision. All of us have to make a decision. And the decision is, I either choose to live in the past with all of the hurts that have been there. I choose to stay there and be a perpetual victim. Or I choose to walk away from my victimhood and walk toward God and say, God, I trust you to bring about all the good things in my life that you have promised to bring. You cannot have both. You cannot have victimhood, and you cannot have God's restoration at the same time. But I can tell you this, and I haven't told you this to lift myself up in any way. I just want to tell you, I've drunk this Kool-Aid before. I know what I'm talking about, that if you give God the opportunity, he will restore as only he can restore. 
Would you be open to that today? I'm talking to some of you, and your lives have been so painful because of what people have done to you or what they didn't do or they should have done. I ask you to turn that over to God and to say, God, I'm trusting you for my future. Don't lose another precious day.